Hear ye, hear ye. Gather round the court of Midtown Bookshelf, where today only the most majestic, regal, and worthy books are being crowned. Today is the Victoria Day weekend, a holiday that celebrates Canada's continued connection to the British monarchy. And while to many, the concept of monarchy, kings, queens, princesses, and princes, may seem archaic and outdated, just one look at the sea of flag-waving adulation that greeted Will and Kate in 2011, or the continued ubiquity of Disney princesses in our school classrooms, shows us that, archaic or not, the idea of monarchy is still intensely relevant in the 21st century. But why is that? Well, unsurprisingly, I think one answer can be found in books. In literature, we find royalty everywhere, and it's full of twisting contradictions. Kings and queens can be either conniving or benevolent. Princes and princesses are interchangeably dough-headed or heroic. And we see stories of princesses rebelling successfully against their tyrant fathers, common folk outsmarting nobility, riches and status portrayed as a reward or as the cause of tragic downfall. Indeed, in literature, the concept of royalty stands as a seemingly universal catch-all for the great virtues and vices of the human condition. Valor, benevolence, betrayal, tragedy, justice, all of these are hallmarks of monarchical stories from the Odyssey to Shakespeare and all the way to the Game of Thrones. In picture books, the concept of monarchy also has found lasting relevance. Celebrated contemporary authors have used children's affinity for princesses, castles, and knights to teach lessons on feminism, equity, kindness, and inclusiveness. Such themes also make for wonderful and engaging tales, and today you will be hearing a few of these. So hear ye, hear ye, sound the trumpets, pound out the drums, gather round all ye adventurers and brave readers of books. You're listening to Midtown Bookshelf. Our royal court of reading is now in session. Welcome to Midtown Bookshelf here on Midtown Radio. We are so happy you could join us on this Victoria Day long weekend. Today we are diving into the concept of royalty and showcasing some fantastic picture books that are in some way connected to kings, queens, knights, castles, dragons, and all of that good stuff. With me today is our usual panel of picture book enthusiasts, Serena McDermott. Hi, Serena. Hello, good morning. Morning, and Allison Dijak. Hello, Allison. Hi there. Serena and Allison, all of this talk of royalty has got me thinking about my own childhood and how growing up, I didn't really notice how many things around me had some connection to monarchy or royalty. But looking back, I mean, it was everywhere in the stories I read, the movies I watched, the video games I played, even the toys I had. I mean, I can't count how many times I made a little Lego castle. I mean, things always seem to have a connection to some aspect of monarchy when you were a child. And I'm wondering, was that the same for you? I mean, looking back on it, were kings and queens and princesses and princes as present in your childhood as they were for me? 
Yeah, I would say so. And it's funny because I, I didn't even feel like I was really seeking these things out. But certainly, you know, looking around, I would have picture books that featured kings and queens and princesses. You know, the Disney princesses were on on the shelf or on my clothing sometimes. You know, I saw the queen on all of our currency and on stamps that I would collect. Like reminders of monarchy were everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I definitely loved Disney princesses when I was younger. I had a few Halloween costumes where I was a princess. Um, and I always was watching different movies that kind of had those medieval themes in them. I, I always just really enjoyed them. Um, and I know that when I was a little bit older, I started getting into reading uh, some different books that had um, kind of historical fiction about about different princesses, uh, you know, real or or made up. And I always really enjoyed them. Medieval times was something that was pretty fascinating as a child. Yeah, I've never been to medieval times, but I just think back to the video games I played. Like, I mean, my first video game was Super Mario 64, where Mario has to go rescue Princess Peach from Bowser in the castle. And I played lots of Legend of Zelda. Of course, there's Le Princess Zelda and Link who has to constantly go and save her out of Ganon or Ganondorf's castle. I mean, that stuff was everywhere. And, and like you said, Serena, I didn't really notice it too much. I didn't realize how prevalent it was in my childhood. So I'm wondering, like, what is it about those concepts of monarchy and royalty that are so appealing to children? I think there's just so much drama and it's been romanticized so much. There's, you know, the, there's the power of being king or queen or princess. There's the glamour of it. Like the books that I had, Allison, you maybe read these as well. Um, the like Princess Diaries series where you'd read these like fictionalized di diaries of princesses mm -hmm. from historical times. And like those books the um, paper was like gilded, like had gold over the edges of it. So it was just so, you know, like captivating and, and romantic to see these things. And I'm sure living in that time was, was not actually romantic or <laughs> really glamorous at all. But it, looking back on that time, I think we have this image of it as such. Yeah, of course, I agree. You know, the big fancy gowns that the princesses and queens wear, the way they do up their hair fancy, like that was so um, consuming for me. I just thought it was so amazing. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of a lot of creativity that comes along with the idea of, you know, having a magical kingdom, right? If kids are, you know, playing those games on the playground or at home, they can kind of make up this world to be whatever they want. You know, if they're the kings or queens of their own land, they can decide what they want that to be, what the rules are. And so I think there's a lot of creativity that comes with um, ruling your own world. And I'll just sh share a story, Allison. In grade four, when like when I was a grade four student and we were studying medieval times, our classroom put on our own sort of medieval times lunch. We didn't do the traditional field trip into Toronto for medieval times. We just did it in our classroom. And it was the probably one of the most fun experiences I had through all of my schooling. We each were assigned roles. We had like the nobility, the king and queen, the peasants. We did 
did dances and songs. We had traditional food. And, you know, we researched all of these things to try and make them authentic. And and you're right. There was so much creativity involved. And, like, getting to play these different roles was so much fun. So you're right. It opens a lot of doors for uh, exploration and creativity for sure. Yeah, I think there's something about that adventure piece of it too, right? I mean, so it's so outside of the norm. I look at some of the uh, some of the stories that I remember from growing up, and it all had to do with you know exploring this magical land and not knowing what's out there, and and finding different treasures and all the all those things that I wished that I could do as a child. But then you remember that you're in a small town in Ontario and that all of the land around you is already taken up by houses and shopping malls. So it just provides such an escape from the, the normal reality of childhood. And well, today we're going to kick off our show with a really fitting song. It's by a Toronto artist, Banners. And uh, Banner's offstage name is Michael Nelson, and he was born in Liverpool, England, home of the British monarchy. And his music features a lot of really epic themes and lyrics that I associate with the idea of royalty. And this song is the first track off his latest album. It's called Rule the World. Sometimes you get the feeling That all the writing's on the wall And everything you do is conditioned To reconcile with your submission Sit down and float along When it all falls apart we're cold in the dark, just hold me, nothing is lost And we'll always know that we could just rule the world And we could just bite every kingdom as it turns Put on our crowns of gold, it's been Skies have turned to rain I remember us, my darling And though it's hard to hear you calling Yeah, stand up and float away When it all falls apart And you're cold in the dark Remember, nothing is lost And I need you to know That we could just rule the world Just bite every kingdom as it turns Put on our crowns of gold It's been hard, I know Oh, darling, we could rule the world We could just, we could just rule the world Oh, we could just rule the world Darling, we could just 
Banners. Welcome back to Midtown Bookshelf, where today we are embarking on an epic quest to bring home the princes and princesses of picture books. First, Matt Raffolt has brought in a book on this theme. What book did you bring in, Matt? Thanks, Allison. As soon as our listeners heard that our theme this week was royalty, I'm sure their minds leapt straight to this book, one of the absolute classics of contemporary children's literature and Canadian, no less. Of course, I'm talking about Robert Munch and Michael Marchenko's The Paper Bag Princess, a story in which we find all sorts of traditional fairy tale tropes twisted on their heads. It's hard to believe that The Paper Bag Princess was released 40 years ago this month. The book's proud and unabashed feminist message feels just as relevant today as it must have felt back then. This book is a quintessential example of how storytellers can use the concept of monarchy as a vehicle to draw readers' attention to contemporary social issues. And truly, this is a book that needs no further introduction. This is The Paper Bag Princess by Robert Munch, illustrated by Michael Marchenko. Elizabeth was a beautiful princess. She lived in a castle and had expensive princess clothes. She was going to marry a prince named Ronald. Unfortunately, a dragon smashed her castle, burned all, his all her clothes with his fiery breath, and carried off Prince Ronald. Elizabeth decided to chase the dragon and get Ronald back. She looked everywhere for something to wear, but the only thing she could find that was not burnt was a paper bag. So she put on the paper bag and followed the dragon. He was easy to follow because he left a trail of burnt forests and horses' bones. Finally, Elizabeth came to a cave with a large door that had a huge knocker on it. She took hold of the knocker and banged on the door. The dragon stuck out his nose from the door and said, Well, a princess. I love to eat princesses, but I have already eaten a whole castle today. I'm a very busy dragon. Come back tomorrow. He slammed the door so fast that Elizabeth almost got her nose caught. Elizabeth grabbed the knocker, and banged on the door again. The dragon stuck his nose out of the door and said, Go away! I love to eat princesses, but I have already eaten a whole castle today. I am a very busy dragon. Come back tomorrow. Wait! shouted Elizabeth. Is it not true that you are the smartest and fiercest dragon in the whole world? Yes said the dragon. 
Is it true, said Elizabeth, that you can burn up to ten forests with your fiery breath? Oh, yes, said the dragon. And he took a huge, deep breath and breathed out so much fire that he burnt up fifty forests. Fantastic, said Elizabeth. And the dragon took another huge breath and breathed out so much fire that he burnt up one hundred forests. Magnificent, said Elizabeth. And the dragon took another huge breath, but this time nothing came out. The dragon didn't even have enough fire left to cook a meatball. Elizabeth said, Dragon, is it true that you can fly around the world in just ten seconds? Why, yes, said the dragon, and jumped up and flew all the way around the world in just ten seconds. He was very tired when he got back, but Elizabeth shouted, Fantastic! Do it again! So the dragon jumped up and flew around the whole world in just 20 seconds. When he got back, he was too tired to walk. He laid down and went straight to sleep. Elizabeth whispered very softly, Hey, dragon! The dragon didn't move at all. She lifted up the dragon's ear, put her head right inside, and she shouted as loud as she could, Hey, dragon! The dragon was so tired, he didn't even move. Elizabeth walked right over the dragon and opened the door to the cave. There was Prince Ronald. He looked at her and said, Elizabeth, you are a mess. You smell like ashes and your hair is tangled and you're wearing a dirty old paper bag. Come back when you are dressed like a real princess. Ronald, Elizabeth said, your clothes are really pretty and your hair is very neat. You look like a real prince, but you are a bum. They didn't get married after all. And on the last page, we see Elizabeth running her hands above her head, no crown on her head, into the sunset, presumably happily ever after. And that's The Paper Bag Princess by Robert Munch, illustrated by Michael Marchenko. What'd you think of that book, Serena and Allison? I'm sure you've read that one or heard it before growing up. Yeah, that, um, that was a classic for me growing up. But it's funny, actually, when you were introducing it, I was trying to think to myself what happened in the middle of the book. I I couldn't really remember. I knew how it ended, but um, but then as soon as you started reading it, I I remembered how she outsmarted the dragon. I was just smiling the entire time while you were reading it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny what sticks with you because I remember the two things that made an impression on me as a kid were the illustrations of her being so dirty mm-hmm. and just feeling like, oh, gross, that would suck. I, I wouldn't like to be that dirty. <laughs> and then... At the very end, when she tells the prince that he's a bum, I remember just being so tickled by that because saying that someone was a bum was like a big swear in my house. Like that was like a really, that was like, ooh, scandalous. She said bum. Like, so. 
<laughs> those were the things that stuck with me. Probably not what uh, Robert Munch intended there, but... Well, I think he definitely put that word bum in there at the end with a bit of a knowing wink to all the kids who are reading it. I know as a teacher, if, if one of the students said this in a kindergarten class, I would have to say to them, no bathroom words in the class. But of course, if it's in a storybook, that's a little bit different. I like when, they, when authors include things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about when I first heard this book. And I think that, I mean, the biggest thing that stuck out to me when I read the story now versus back then was to me, it didn't really strike me as very strange back then that it was Elizabeth that was going on this big adventure to rescue Ronald. But I think that says a lot about what our perceptions are as kids versus when we grow up. It's not really that big of a deal, or at least it wasn't to me. Um, it wasn't something noticeable that it was Elizabeth who was going off to outsmart the dragon and rescue the prince. But now you look back on it and it seems like this huge, you know, a very brave book to write, especially 40 years ago, a very, you know, a, a bit of a controversial or a, or a bit of a surprising message um, or political message to go, to change a trope up like that. What do you think of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree that um, it's pretty different that the girl ends up alone at the end, right? So many stories that we read have the happily ever, ever after because the the girl character has married her prince and found her true love and then they can rule the kingdom together or they can go on an adventure together so um that ending is was definitely not typical of the time and still not even super typical now so i think it's still a really strong ending for the book and a really great message for kids and adults too honestly the other question that i had for this is i mean moving beyond this idea of the feminist story, uh, feminist plot in the book. What else do you think that the book can can teach us? Is there any other lessons or messages that are still relevant uh, forty years after it was first published? Um, I think for me, uh, I really like the idea that um, a little girl is able to, you know, outsmart this big gigantic dragon. I'm not sure if it really references how old Elizabeth is, but. I would imagine she's maybe a teenager. Um, and I love that it's showing that, you know, she's smart enough and strong enough to get through this big tragedy all by herself. I think it's amazing to show the bravery and the intelligence that she had to kind of solve this problem on her own. I think that's really admirable and a great trait to portray in this story. And there's probably a lesson in there for the dragon about the dangers of ego and <laughs> the importance of have, being a little humble. Of course. I was thinking also about like materialism, you know, thinking about um, Ronald's comments to Elizabeth and how scornful he is about her paper bag attire. And I thought there might be something in there that we can take about the importance of, you know, about... Um, it doesn't matter what your appearance is like. It's more about what you do, especially in this sort of age where so much of our lives are consumed by, you know, creating images on online and appearances and, and personalities on social media. I thought there might be something in there we can teach kids about the value of, you know, being true to yourself and, and, uh, and your, your actions speaking louder than appearances. Yeah, I really think that Robert Munch paints Ronald as a really unlikable character, which is great because he certainly doesn't portray great, uh, you know, views of the world, a lot of materialism. And so I'm glad that Robert Munch made him, uh, you know, kind of this slimy character that people wouldn't want to aspire to be. 
So um, Matt, that was a really great pick and a nice nostalgic one for us to uh, chat about together. What song did you bring to go with it today? Well, just like how Elizabeth faced down the fearsome dragon in our story, the song I brought in also talks about the importance of bravery and facing down your biggest fears. It's a song by one of the true princesses of Canadian music, and by that I mean someone who is immensely hardworking, creative, and blazing her own trail, just like Elizabeth did. This is a song off her first full-length album, The Listening. This is the song Lions by Lights. just heard Lions by Lights. This is Midtown Bookshelf, and today we're taking on dragons with a program all about picture book royalty. Up next, we have Alison Dijak, who has brought in a book that truly brings the idea of kings and queens into the 21st century. 
Tell us about your book, Allison. Thanks, Matt. So I am a lover of some of the classic fairy tales. Um, as I said earlier, I grew up completely enthralled with the stories of The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Rapunzel was a favorite of mine. And when I was younger, I really admired them for you know their fancy dresses and the Disney princesses' beautiful singing voices. But I also dreamt of finding my perfect partner and living happily ever after, just as they did. However, if we look at these classics with a more critical lens, we know that their fairy tale endings are severely lacking in terms of diversity at times, and sometimes relatability as well. Author Daniel Hack saw this gap in children's media and decided to write a children's book with an updated version of a fairy tale. He wanted to create a book with human characters that children could relate to and become invested in and see themselves or their family members represented in such a universal story. So today I brought the book Prince and Knight by Daniel Hack and illustrated by Stevie Lewis. This book, it was from 2018, and I would say it's a book that would be great for all ages. Um, it's a great story that uh, all kids will enjoy and really teaches some great lessons of diversity and representation too. So this is Prince and Knight. Once upon a time, in a kingdom far from here, lived a charming prince who was handsome and sincere. His parents knew that soon it would be time he took the throne, but with a kingdom so grand, the prince could not rule alone. So the three of them set out and traveled far and wide on a quest to find the prince, a kind and worthy bride. The prince met many ladies and he made them all swoon. But it was soon clear that he was singing a different tune. Thank you, he told his parents. I appreciate that you tried, but I am looking for something different in a partner by my side. But while the royals were away, their land faced quite a scare from a dragon fast approaching, breathing fire everywhere. All of the villagers ran in fear. Even the soldiers hid and fled. This vicious beast is far too great. We must retreat or we'll be dead. The prince heard the dreadful news and he raced home with all his might. To protect his precious realm, the prince was ready for a fight. Alas, before you fear, the prince had to face the beast alone. Along on a horseback came a knight cloaked in armor that brightly shone. The dragon charged upon our heroes, thinking it had finally won. But the knight had a bold idea and raised his shield to face the sun. The glare hit the shiny metal, blinding the dragon's fiery eye. But it was what the prince did next that really caught it by surprise. The prince had climbed atop the dragon and tied a rope around its head. He wrapped the cord around the neck and down the body like a thread 
The plan had worked. The dragon was caught. Its body was tied and bound. But the prince up high had lost its grip and was falling to the ground. The knight below jumped up on its horse and they began to race. The prince was caught and free from harm held in the knight's embrace. You saved my life and you saved mine, they said to one another. And in a flash to each it felt, there simply was no other. The knight took off his helmet to reveal his handsome face and they gazed into each other's eyes. Their hearts began to race. As the villagers returned, it became clear to those around that the prince's one true love had at last been surely found. The king and queen had come back too and were overwhelmed with joy. We have finally found someone who is perfect for our boy. And on the two men's wedding day, the air filled with cheer and laughter for the prince and his shining knight would live happily ever after. The end. Wow. I love how just changing that one little detail makes the story so refreshing and just seems so new and so current. That's a great book, Allison. Thanks for bringing that in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it as well. And I love that, yeah, it's that really familiar story. You know, what kid does not love reading about a big battle with a dragon? But uh, it's just done in a more current way that can reach a lot more children and, and be more relatable to them. I also love the detail at the end when the king and queen come back and it says how happy they were. I thought the author just, the language that the author used was just so perfect to describing that. It just made the, the, the king and queen feel so loving uh, to, their, to their prince. Yeah, in this book, you know, we don't really see the LGBTQ characters experiencing prejudice from their community or families. So I'm wondering, Matt and Serena, what do you think about the author's choice to portray these characters in a more matter-of-fact way. I really appreciate that. I think, you know, we're, we try to find line in a lot of these, in discussing these topics, because sometimes in addressing stereotypes, we can end up reinforcing them. So, you know, sometimes we do need to call out a stereotype um, and address it right on. But then at other times, we, we can just bypass those stereotypes. We don't need to keep bringing them up again and again eventually we hope to come to a place in society where we don't hold those prejudices so maybe sometimes just letting them letting them go not not continually reinforcing them is the right move yeah i think that allison going back to something you said in the introduction of the show i think that's what makes these type of you know regal or, or, or monarchy books so appealing is the fact that they um that the author can really create a world that seems believable. And in that world, there doesn't have to be all sorts of oppression to LGBT, um, LGBTQ community members. I mean, the author is free to create a magical kingdom and where that doesn't exist. And Serena, like you said, that can be so powerful because it can show kids that it doesn't have to be that way. 
there's nothing wrong with having or there that that should be the way it is and by having a, a a magical kingdom like that where it doesn't exist hopefully it can inspire kids to want to bring that into the community that they live as well of course yeah daniel hack the author um had said in many interviews about the book that he just wanted to present these characters um in kind of a matter of fact way where kids could see themselves in the story they could maybe see their family members or parents in the story and yeah just make it a story that didn't have to be about overcoming such a big struggle in life um you know it's just a fun relatable story that children will enjoy because yeah kids love reading fairy tale stories you know what little kid doesn't like a knight that goes to fight a battle but um it can also just expose them to same-sex relationships um, and make that just part of their everyday life, which it should be. Yeah, it's, it sort of makes me think about how for some of these groups of oppressed people, you know, there's, there's this social progression. Like first there's a fight for tolerance, just putting up with who, who this group is. And then there's a fight for acceptance and a fight for celebration. And I think ultimately at the end, you just come to this place where, you know, it's just, it just is matter of fact, as the author says, you're not, um, yeah, you're, it's, it's just not something that's different anymore. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's what I really love about this book. And mm -hmm. uh, the author was also saying that um, he thought it would be really important for maybe children that don't have anyone in their life that identifies as LGBTQ+. You know, it's just a way to expose them to that and maybe start a new conversation with them, right? About, um, you know, what that looks like and how those relationships are same or different from what they have seen in their life. So, you know, it's just a way to expose kids to, to more and more in their life so that they can grow up to be, you know, accepting adults. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I just really appreciate how the author took that traditional sort of story type and then brought in that 21st century, you know, that acceptance piece into that traditional story type because it allows kids to access it so easily. And I'm sure there's been a lot of great conversations that have been had in classrooms and in homes all because of a book like this. Allison, thank you so much for bringing that in. And you have a song for us today, right? Yeah, so because this book is a great love story, mm -hmm. I was trying to think of some of my favorite love songs. So this is from Toronto-based artist Donovan Woods, and it's a beautiful duet called I Ain't Ever Loved No One. I guess before I met you I didn't know better you swept in out of nowhere when I thought I'd never go there and you set the bar for this stubborn heart and when you met my family everybody knew that you had me
you set the bar for this stubborn heart when you met my family everybody knew that you had me wrapped I ain't ever loved no one like that when I said I loved you I didn't care if you said it back I ain't ever loved no one like And maybe I'll love again Then again, maybe I won't Maybe you feel the same Maybe you don't How would I know? Cause when you met my family Everybody knew that you had me That beautiful song was I Ain't Ever Love No One by Canadian artist Donovan Woods featuring Tennille Towns. Thanks so much for sharing your Sunday morning with us. Today on Midtown Bookshelf, we are crowning the best picture books that relate to our theme of royalty. This next book is a classic tale about the triumph of a little guy, or in this case, a little king. Serena, tell us about the story you've brought in today. Well, I was so happy to see the books that you and Allison chose this week because I knew we were going to get to explore some wonderful social issues through that story, those stories. And I'd like to share a book with you now that uses royalty and some fun wordplay to explore the little things in life. This is the first picture book from West Virginia storyteller, storyteller Bill Lepp, and it's illustrated with exceptional detail by David Wenzel, who's best known for adapting The Hobbit into a graphic novel. I am going to share with you today, The King of Little Things. The King of Little Things by Bill Lepp, illustrated by David Wenzel. Long ago on the far side of a mountain lived the King of Little Things. While other kings busied themselves with the big things of the world, he happily ruled over all things small. He was king of coins, candles, combs, keys, knots, nods, knobby knees, bottles, buttons, beetles, burps, chiggers, chips, chickadee chirps, pedals, paddles, paper clips, lamp wicks, lentils, lizard lips, mittens, marbles, macaroni, barnacles, bats, and fried bologna. The king of little things had a cozy house and a loving queen. He fed the birds, left the crumbs for the ants, and planted flowers for the bees. He had everything he needed and didn't want for more. 
Not so with bigger kings. No matter how vast their kingdoms, they always wanted more. Bigger riches, bigger bridges, bigger britches. Greediest of all was King Normus. He wanted to be king of all the world. With this in mind, he gathered an army. A big army. He raided realms. He squashed sovereignties. He eradicated empires. When he was certain he had conquered every king, queen, czar, empress, chieftain, raja, and sultan in the world, it was time for some magnificent merrymaking. He ordered his cooks to fix a fabulous feast. He commanded his goldsmith to create a colossal crown. He instructed his tailors to sew a splendid suit. At last, proclaimed King Normus, as he lifted the glittering crown from its velvet cushion, I am king of all things. His steward raised a trembling hand. I beg your pardon, your highness, of great heft. What is it? snapped the king. M m my large liege, whispered the steward. I believe you may have missed his minuscule majesty, the, the king of little things. Little things have a king? howled Normus. What nonsense. Everyone knows that little things exist only to serve big things. And at this point, King Normus decides that he's going to launch an attack on the king of little things. So he gets together his army. As the enemy approached, the king of little things sent a message to his subjects. He had a plan and he needed their help. And during the night, the little things went to work. The next morning, King Normus's soldiers found mealworms in their bread, chiggers in their underpants, and fungus between their toes. Worst yet, there was nothing left to fight with. Termites had made dust heaps of their arrow shafts. Water droplets had worked their way into their gunpowder. And rust had ruined the cannons and catapults. In a royal rage, King Normus called for his council. If we cannot defeat this king through might, he roared. Then clearly we must trick him. We must cheat him. We must lie. After all, a lie, no matter how small, is never a little thing. Normus turned to his advisors. Invite this charlatan to my tent under a flag of truce and prepare the dungeon. The instant the king of little things entered the tent, small things recognized their master and fell at his feet. Coins rolled out of the big king's coffers. Jewels jumped from his crown. Buttons popped from his suspenders. Normus stood in his underwear before the entire court. Take this punny pretender to the castle, he shrieked, and toss him in the dungeon. The soldiers tried, but the dungeon keys were loyal to the king of little things and would not turn the lock. The nails recognized their king and sprang from the door to bow beneath him. When Normus learned of this, he had the little king taken to the deepest, darkest cave in the land. He ordered the entrance sealed with a stone, a big stone. Life in the cave was not entirely unpleasant. Ants brought crumbs, birds brought seeds, bees brought honey, but the king of little things missed his house. He missed his garden, he missed his queen. He sent a message with the ants, birds, and bees. He respectfully asked little things everywhere to make themselves known. The little things loved their king and they obeyed. 
All over the world, small things began to happen. Strings unstrung, hangers unhung, doors closed, campfires froze, frills unfrilled, pickles undilled, quills quivered, pencils shivered, bolts bolted, brakes jolted, cookies crumbled, locks tumbled, ticks and talks left their clocks, Boats listed, words twisted, lights unlit, scarves unknit, and every little thing everywhere refused to work. The people stormed Normus's castle and demanded that he release the prisoner. Abandoned by his armies, the once mighty king had little choice. So the king of little things returned home. The little things went back to work. And King Normus? Ah, well. He spent the rest of his days looking for his keys, his spectacles, his pocket watch, his socks, his wallet, his hairnet, and he never thought about little things in the same way again. The end. Wow, what a fun book. Wow, I was uh, I was laughing at a lot of the parts. It was, was a really funny book. I love the big lists that you had to read. Good for yeah, you. Yeah, a bit of a tongue twister there. I did a little practicing. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. I love that they chose all the little obscure things. The lentils was something that he, he was in control over. That's awesome. Yeah, it was so imaginative and so creative. Like it really held my attention throughout the entire story. Yeah, I think the the suggested ages for this book would be probably four to eight. But I imagine reading this with four year olds, you'll have a bit of explaining about one of what some of these items are. Yeah, thankfully you've got these really wonderful detailed illustrations which support the whole story and and really take the the reader along for a ride. Yeah, Serena, I took a look at the uh, at the illustrations. I took a look at the book online, and the illustrations they just seemed like they had this, such this classic medieval sort of regal vibe. I really think it, the the illustrator did a fantastic job of capturing the spirit of the story. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm really happy to hear that you've enjoyed the book. I'm exploring all these royalty related books this week. It gave me a chance to experience how diverse the messages in in royalty related books can be. And in this case, we heard a message about valuing the contributions of small things. So I was wondering what sort of classroom lessons that you two might use this book for. I think the one that sprang to my mind would be, I would try to find a way to pair it maybe with some some gardening things to maybe talk a little bit about climate change or the importance of taking care of the environment. I mean, I think that you one thing you could do is you could read this book and talk about how um, you know, even just one or two plants could make the schoolyard look a little bit more beautiful or how maybe ha- bringing in some na- a few little pieces of the natural world into the classroom might just brighten up the space. So I think I might try to do something along that way and maybe pair it with some outdoor learning, maybe build a little, a little classroom garden or a little school garden to make a, to make a bit of a, a, a little space there to brighten up a, and beautify the school. Nice. I didn't even think of that. That's that's a really lovely idea. Yeah. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of, you know, what character education we could pull out of it. And I think that although materialism and that concept is really important, I also really got um, the theme of competitiveness in this, um, which I think is really important for children of all ages. Um, you know, the the King Normus, which, by the way, what a fantastic character name. That's so funny. Um, so much clever word work yeah, in this one. I love it. Um, King Normus is, 
he's just so incredibly competitive with the king of little things. And I think that can come out in children sometimes, you know, they feel the need to be competitive about maybe what video games they have, what toys they have, what accomplishments they have achieved, you know, winning a medal or an award in a sport that they play. And, you know, sometimes they just feel the need to devalue the smaller accomplishments of their peers. Um, it's It can be hard for them to see that a little thing that maybe their peer has accomplished or that their peer has um, they find it hard to value that and be excited for their classmate as well. So I think that that competitive nature um, is something that is really important to address. And this story just does it really wonderfully. Yeah, I think that there, there's a great line in that book where King Normus says that, you know, you know that everybody knows that little things only are only exist to serve big things. And then I, that just like that got me thinking about like how untrue that statement is because most big things, whether it's a car or a plane or like an instrument, it's mostly just made up of little things, right? Like, so it's really, and I think you can apply that in the classroom by talking about how, you know, it's it, wanting to make big change or, or accomplish big things. You have to do a whole bunch of little things and only through doing those whole bunch of little things can you actually accomplish something really big or really enormous. Mm -hmm. You could really talk about, you know, goal setting or something like that using this book too. Um, Allison, you were talking before about character education. So by that, we mean talking about like character traits and, and attributes that we try and foster in kids. And the some that came to mind for me with this book would were related to yours. Um, I was thinking a lot about gratitude or mindfulness, how we could have students um, sit and reflect on what are all the little things in your day that make a difference um, oh, that, you know, allow you to live the life that you do? And then how can we express gratitude? How can we have that attitude of gratitude for those little <laughs> things? And, you know, as teachers, this is something that we're often trying to model for our students, um, taking time to thank everyone and, and point out the little things, as you said, if you notice a student in the class who's done something small, just taking the, the moment to appreciate that with them. And that can help curb some of that kind of toxic competitiveness that you were talking about before. Yeah, I think gratitude is a really important trait that is good to practice with children as young as they can be. Um, it's just so important to remember to be thankful for all the things in our life and, and not take them for granted. So that was really a great book and new to me, Serena. Thanks for bringing that in today. Um, what song did you bring for us to pair with it? This week I've chosen a neo-folk tune from local Kitchener band Safe As Houses. This song really evokes nostalgia and a desire to enjoy the little things in life. From their recent third album, Lucky Lucky, this is Alive. Under the lamppost, pulled from the night, you were a shadow in the suburban light. Trickling glow of the inanimate street. Yeah, we kicked a pulse into the concrete. Man, I feel like I'm younger again. This is how life's meant to be spent. Only a few things are true in the end. We're never gonna make it. 
That brings us to the end of our majestic adventure today. We've conquered dragons, we've found our Prince Charming, and we've even dethroned the mean old king. I guess there's nothing left for us to do except to ride off happily ever after into the sunset. Today on the program, you heard a trio of regal titles. I read the Canadian classic, The Paperbag Princess, written by Robert Munch and illustrated by Michael Marchenko. Alison Dijak inter introduced us to the beautiful love story Prince and Knight, written by Daniel Hack and illustrated by Steve Lewis. And finally, Serena McDermott brought us to battle with the story King of Little Things by Bill Lepp, illustrated by David Wenzel. Next week, we have a very special episode of Midtown Bookshelf. Muslims all over the world will be partaking in the biannual celebration of Eid. So we're going to explore that celebration with some wonderful picture books that showcase Muslim authors, Muslim stories, and their celebrations. From all of us here at Midtown Bookshelf, thanks so much for tuning in and keep reading. <laughs>